Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And I'm John Harmon. We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Right. In the last episode, Ron, we finished the part of the sermon where Jesus covers giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Right. And those were all things that might be associated with a trip to the temple, for example. Mm -hmm. Although you could certainly do all of those things elsewhere. These were also disciplines with a common focus on humbling ourselves before God, right? Jesus points out bluntly that there are those who have twisted these behaviors. They do these things just for the praise, just for the recognition of others. Those are the hypocrites that Jesus talked about. That's his word. Yeah, right, his <laughs> the hypocrites. word. Right. <laughs> the ones who are just playing a part. They pretend to be citizens of the kingdom of God, but they are merely self-serving. John, I like the way that you put this in the last episode. There's an inherent contradiction in making a show of one's humility. <laughs> yeah. We now know that this sermon is tightly focused on the kingdom of heaven. In the next section, Jesus considers how our focus on the kingdom of heaven might be jeopardized by other concerns. Nothing can be allowed to do that. The goal, Jesus insists, is not material security, but God's rule. It was clear from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been consistently emphasized throughout the sermon, that it's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about the kind of people that populate the kingdom and how they carry themselves. Most importantly, it's about how the nature of the ruler of this kingdom, God, shapes the kingdom and shapes those who inhabit the kingdom. Jesus just reiterates this further as we move into the second half of Matthew chapter 6 and the last half of the sermon. Don't accumulate treasure on earth, Jesus says. Instead, we should accumulate it in heaven. Treasure on earth inevitably corrupts. It corrodes or collapses. Treasure in heaven, on the other hand, is permanent. More importantly, though, our hearts will be where our treasure is. If we want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven— that world where God's will is perfectly accomplished, then we need our hearts focused fully on that. Jesus spins this idea out with a couple of additional metaphors. The first is that of the eye and light. Eye here seems to represent where our focus lies, and Jesus calls this eye the lamp of the body. If we have any inward light, it depends on the condition of our lamp. So if we have an unhealthy focus on the needs of this life, an unhealthy focus on wealth, in short, an unhealthy eye, then our lives are necessarily plunged in darkness. If, on the other hand, our focus is on the kingdom of God, essentially, if our focus is on God and if we actually meant it when we prayed, your will be done, then our lamp is in good working order. Then and only then are we filled with light, as we'd expect of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's a fascinating but unsurprising metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. The second metaphor is that of a servant with two masters, which in that setting was literally an impossibility. Right. A, a master owned all of the time and the efforts of, of a servant or a slave. So it really was impossible to serve two masters. And Jesus kind of brings this reality out. You have to pick one or the other. You have to pick sides. If you even try to do that, you'll end up really cheating one of the masters, maybe even resenting them. Now, the two masters, Jesus says, are God and money. Curiously, in Matthew's Greek, as I understand it, money is rendered with the Aramaic word mammon. Yes. Uh, that's money or wealth personified. It's as if there's God 
and then the alternative God contender, (laughs) money. Uh Sooner or later, we have to choose between the two. We just can't serve them both. It's after this discussion of where our treasure is in the next section on the sermon that we find Jesus' well-known instruction on worrying. And it is directly tied to what came before. Don't miss the bridge here. Jesus just said you can't serve both God and money. And he ties that directly to what comes next with the words, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about what you eat or drink or wear. Life is more than food and clothing. So money is what we use to provide for ourselves. Now we're going to talk about providing for ourselves. Hmm. Jesus is doing several things in this section on worrying. First, he's playing out the consequences of kingdom focus. If our focus is on what God wants, we don't have to worry about basic provision. Second, we continue the theme here that God knows what we want. Jesus said that as he introduced prayer, and he repeats it again here. Finally, since he just finished talking about not letting wealth distract us, Jesus now demonstrates just how far that principle goes. We can't even let our basic necessities, food and clothing, distract us from the kingdom of God. The way Jesus plays out this portion of the sermon is profoundly beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Matthew suggested right at the beginning that Jesus and his audience were sitting outside. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we have to imagine Jesus maybe pointing around. Mm -hmm. Look at the birds flying around here. God gives them all they need to eat. Aren't we even more valuable in God's eyes? Look at the flowers here in the field. They're clothed only in what God gave them, and they are more beautiful than, Jesus says, Solomon in all of his glory, which would have been a striking image for his audience. If God does for a flower that's gone tomorrow, won't God do at least that much for us? So as beautiful as it is, Jesus is still firmly focused on the point that he began with when he instructed us to store up treasure in heaven. At this point in the sermon, he frames it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As always, right? Mm -hmm. Kingdom first, and the rest follows. Right. If we're concerned about the kingdom of God first, we know that God knows what we need. Right. We know God wants to provide it, and he will. There's just no point in worrying. John, you've heard me go on and on about this before, but the last two sentences of this section are simultaneously some of my most and least favorite scripture. And I think some of the most clever wording in the sermon. Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Literally, that's the way it goes in the Greek. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. And that last little bit, that's the King James Version translation. I realize that, but it preserves the exact order of the Greek words. And it has a ring to it no matter what you say about the KJV, John. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it means, it's worth saying this, it means today's trouble is enough. Now, There's a temptation to read this as instructing us to take everything one day at a time. And there may certainly be an element of that in what Jesus says here. It has certainly meant that to me when I felt like hanging on through this day was pushing the limits of my strength. Mm. Just get through this day sufficient to this one lousy day is the evil thereof. (laughs) I've thought that before. But we can't lose sight of the main point. It's not so much one day at a time. It's more, as you said earlier, John, kingdom first and all else follows. Mm. God knows what we need. Focus on God. Focus on what God wants. Put the needs of the kingdom first. Don't forget where your ultimate citizenship lies. 
God has the rest. Right. And John, this is where I can't help but make the personal point. This passage of scripture is indelibly burned into my mind in part because it seems to me so impossible. (laughs) My personal domain name, what comes after my email address and the address of my website is architon.org. That comes straight from the first word of this passage, sufficient to the days the evil thereof. In Greek, it's architon tehemera hekakia autes. It is in front of me in every way I can make it, but that's just because when Jesus says, do not worry, I feel like I've been instructed to walk off a cliff and not fall. It feels just (laughs) that impossible. Yeah. I get that the whole point of this is I should focus on the kingdom of God first. God provides the rest. But when I get that far, I can't help but notice that based on what Jesus just said, God provides basic necessities, and I'm not entirely sure I'll be content with God's basic provision. And as soon as I realize that, I find myself forced to ask if I really meant it when I prayed along with Jesus, your will be done and give us our daily bread. Hmm. Now I realize I was probably thinking your will be done, but could you please include some of my will too (laughs) and provide me my daily bread? But couldn't that also include these other things over here? So as soon as I start trying to straighten out my worrying, I'm faced with the problem of squaring my will with God's. And the possibility of giving up something I really want looms so large, I'm not sure, but what I'd rather just go back to worrying. (laughs) I just tie myself (laughs) in knots here. All that is just to say, as far as I'm concerned, this is hard. Amen. Nothing about what Jesus has asked us here comes easy to fall in humanity. And by the way, that means all of us. This instruction on worrying is no exception. But once we get past this section on worrying, I really wonder, John, and you and I have talked about this, I wonder if this next section is a little bit of an aside. We're nearing the end of the primary instruction part of the sermon. Now Jesus addresses another question, I think. If you're trying to get all this right, how could it potentially go wrong? Well, one way it could potentially go wrong is I start being hard on myself as I try to do what Jesus describes, and then I turn around and I'm hard on everyone else because they're not accomplishing what I can't accomplish myself. It's just an obvious mistake to make here, it seems, and Jesus heads it off. Yeah, I agree with that entirely, Ron. When we pursue a surpassing righteousness, we don't get a license to take a judgmental stance with others. The kingdom community should be upbuilding and winsome and caring, characterized by love, not a place of condemnation and manipulation. Human relationships are important, as we've already seen here in the sermon. There's a quality of relationships that God wants for us. And chapter 7 continues to bear this out. In typical rabbinic fashion, Jesus first states a principle— then gives a theological reason for the principle, and then he illustrates it. Okay. So this is how it goes. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. That would be the principle. That's the principle. Okay. For in the same way you judge others, he goes on, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This would be the theological reason, I believe? Exactly. The theological reason for the principle, and finally, the illustration. Okay. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. (laughs) First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's probably worth stopping to consider for a moment what we mean by the word judge here. Uh, We want to note that it does not mean that we can't use discernment and draw moral conclusions. And we're going to say more on that shortly. It does mean that we do not get to stand above others without a healthy sense of our own brokenness and the sense of humility that is appropriate for the people of the kingdom of God. It means we don't get to condemn or pass sentence on others. So perhaps we should distinguish judging as exercising discernment and judging as rendering a verdict on someone else. And incidentally, in the Greek that lies underneath that, the same ambiguity is there as is in the English word judge. In any case, though, we must always discern. However, we are not the judge that renders a verdict, and we shouldn't pretend to be. A question that might naturally come up, Ron, here is when we're judgmental, do we open ourselves up to more scrutiny? by the one who truly can sit in judgment. That reminds me of a rabbinic proverbial saying that may have been behind the phrase, the measure you use, as Jesus says. The proverbial saying said that God uses two measures in judging the world, justice and mercy. Now, the point here, of course, is that if you want mercy, then deal mercifully with others. Right, right. Because that is one of the measures that God will use to judge the world. Well, given that the golden rule is right around the corner here, this does seem to make perfect sense. If you don't want to be judged, don't judge. Seems simple enough. (laughs) Yeah. And Jesus illustrates this, as we said, with a humorous hyperbole. Yeah. And it's in, in good rabbinic fashion. He's illustrating the pure hypocrisy of judging others by putting things in perspective with the image of the speck and the plank or the splinter and the log, depending on the translation. Of course, this doesn't mean that the other person doesn't have faults at all, but we should keep the enormity of our own faults in perspective. And Ron, I'll just say, as I read this, I still see the Pharisees once again, at least in the background. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's hard not to. While we don't sit in judgment, we're still supposed to be wise and recognize things for what they are. It's hard to pass over the simple fact that there is a lot of pressure in the world today to avoid calling things what they are and to buckle under fanciful redefinitions that outright call things what they are not. What we get all too often in the society that we live in today is the very problematic accusation, if you disagree with me, then you are judging me. And the Bible says, do not judge. That's just plain wrong on a number of levels. But let's just say for now that when Jesus says, do not judge, there is no coherent case to be made that he is telling us, you must agree with and endorse whatever anyone else says or does, or you are guilty of judging. That much is plain and clear enough, and there's no reason that Christians should be bullied to the contrary. John, I can't help but notice that earlier on in this, you said that as we go into this section, Jesus is arguing that you can't use this to manipulate others. And I do feel like that we've gotten to the point that some people will use, don't judge me, as a way of doing the exact kind of manipulation Jesus is saying you can't do here. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's our experience today, and it's simply because we've lost connection with what Jesus is actually telling us about judging what it means, and how we are to exercise discernment without exercising condemnation or presuming to pass sentence on other people. 
Jesus uses a parable of sorts that's actually unique to Matthew, and it may be another kind of proverbial saying. Not exactly sure where it comes from, but Mm -hmm. it balances the command in chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Now, that could be a reference to the flesh of animal sacrifice. Okay. That could, that could be the reference, and some scholars believe that it is. A priest would never toss that sacred meat to dogs because dogs wouldn't distinguish it from any roadkill that they might stumble on. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we, we ought to point out in context, dogs were not pets in those days. Right. They were dirty animals. They were filthy animals of the street that had about the same standing as rodents. Yeah. Likewise, Jesus goes on to say, do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Pigs don't appreciate beauty. (laughs) They would treat valuable things as useless and worthless. So we are to be discerning. There are those who will abuse, neglect, and trample the good news and the ways of the kingdom. While we don't sit in judgment, we're still to be wise and recognize things for what they are. Kingdom people are not people of judgmental condemnation who lack self-awareness, but neither are they out of touch with reality and unable to see what's right in front of them. Jesus is going to get to a specific example of this here in just a few more verses. Now, as we come out of this aside about judging others, Jesus introduces the next topic with these words, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. If we've gotten this far, if our will is finally aligned with God's, if we've become the people God intended citizens of the kingdom of heaven to be, if we know God knows what we need and will provide it, if we've reached this point, why wouldn't God provide what we ask? Hmm. At this point, we can't ask something God doesn't already want anyway. So Jesus now assures believers that God will respond to those who pray. Yeah, Jesus uses the same structure to make his point that he's just used. We just talked about it. He gives a principle, a theological reason, and then an illustration. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? That's the illustration. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? It just makes the point. Even the best human parent still pales against God's goodness, to get at the question that you were raising just a minute ago. And Ron, that's an analogy using what's called an a fortiori argument. All right. We know this from biblical studies in general. It's the how much more style of making an argument. And it works like this. If the greater thing is true, then the lesser must be true. Okay. So, for example, if I can afford something that costs $100, then it stands to reason that I can afford something that costs 10 Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? Ron, if you can run five miles easily... Purely hypothetical. <laughs> then how much more easily can you run one mile? Okay. Paul uses this style of argument in several places, like in Romans 5.10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay. If one thing was possible when we were God's enemies, how much more is something possible now that we are reconciled to God? Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this very familiar pattern when he says, that if a sinful human parent can give good gifts to their child, all the more able is our Father in heaven to do so when we ask. Okay, we have one more element in the Sermon on the Mount. And after we get past this element, 
the sermon isn't over, but everything that comes next might be characterized as admonitions to take it seriously. And we're going to get to that in the next episode. We're going to spend an entire episode. In many ways, the instruction is done at this point, except for the instructions to pay attention, so to speak. But now Jesus sums it up, or at least gives us a rule that can serve as a quick and efficient guide. This is essentially the summary of everything we've gotten up to this point, starting with the Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon. It's called the Golden Rule. And it's worth noting that variations on the Golden Rule show up throughout time and in various cultures. So there's nothing unique to its appearance here. It comes in negative forms. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And it comes in positive forms. Jesus reaches for the positive form here. It's also worth noting that the golden rule isn't always as simple to apply as we would like. (laughs) Do to others as you would like them to do to you. You might ask, what does it mean to apply the golden rule when I'm seeking justice after I've been wrong? Does it mean that I let the perpetrator get away because I wouldn't want to be caught? Or does it mean I teach them a lesson because if I was as messed up as they are, I'd want to be taught a lesson too? (laughs) The golden rule is a tremendously effective tool that works when applied in many situations. Better yet, it's easy to grasp. And Jesus grabs it as a quick and effective summary to everything he's set up to now. I'd like to pause for just a moment to address something that will occur to anyone familiar with modern philosophy. Immanuel Kant, possibly the most important figure in modern philosophy, has a key component of his moral philosophy that's called the categorical imperative. And it went like this, act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Crudely, if you're wondering whether you should do something, ask yourself this, should the logic that governs my decision become a universal principle? Or even more crudely still, would it be okay if everyone else acted this way? (laughs) No one who first encounters this categorical imperative and also knows the golden rule will fail to see a similarity here. But Kant insisted that the two were distinct. Now, his reasons go deep and get very technical very fast. But then again, Kant would say that. This is the same guy who famously said, essentially, I'll stop quoting scripture in my lectures when the theology department stops pretending to use logic. (laughs) I can't help but feel like if he did nothing else, Kant should have at least acknowledged his sources here. (laughs) Ron, I'm awfully glad that you can take the reins when it comes to modern philosophy here. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure I can, but that's as far as I can get. Well, let's not miss that last phrase that hasn't been said yet. Okay. Right. First, the golden rule. Right. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. But then next, for this is the law and the prophets. Yeah. Ron, you knew I wouldn't miss that or fail to underscore. You wouldn't let me get by without saying that one. Right. The law and the prophets. That part of the statement of the golden rule is also essential because it ties the whole sermon together. Right. The whole thing up to this point. Remember, Jesus told us early on in the sermon, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right. When Jesus teaches about the kingdom here, he shows us what the Old Testament pointed to. What does life in the kingdom of God that Jesus has made possible look like? Here is its fulfillment. It looks like this.
Everything Jesus said in the part of the Sermon on the Mount we just covered was intended to focus us on the kingdom of God. We can't serve two masters. We either serve God or money. We're either citizens of the kingdom of heaven or citizens of the rest of the world. There is no place for worry. If we're focusing on the kingdom as we should, we know God knows what we need. We know God will provide it. Jesus also takes a moment to warn about how all this can go wrong. The sermon sets an incredibly high standard. Right. People who strive for high standards can be unforgiving towards others who don't meet those standards either. Right. Jesus leaves no room for that. We must always discern what's right and wrong. We must always recognize things for what they truly are. But we are not the ultimate judges, and we cannot pretend to be. And Jesus concludes all of this with the handy tool for keeping the sermon straight, the golden rule. However, we've reached the end of the primary instruction of the sermon. In the next episode, we plan to continue this series with the long sequence of parables or object lessons that Jesus uses in his epilogue to the sermon. It amounts to, Ron, as you said earlier, listen up. <laughs> so come join us for that. In our next episode, we're going to announce the next series. And if you haven't followed along. We've been in the New Testament for a while. It's going to be time for the Old Testament. John will have it no other way. <laughs> and it's one of John's favorites. So be there to hear where we're headed next. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening. <laughs>